All right, Greg is here. So is Sam producing the show. Debbie's on your roads, and Jessica's in for Wyatt this afternoon. Big news this afternoon. Michael Mattioli is on the stand in his trial. He's accused of killing Joel Acevedo. He has taken the stand. Let's listen live. Freedom of movement, correct? Uh, Correct. You, in a sense, have a responsibility to their safety, correct? In a sense, yes. In this situation, you're an intoxicated man who's angry, who's lying on top of a man. And you couldn't give an answer, yes or no, whether or not he was breathing. You simply didn't know, did you? That, was, those were, that is what you said at that moment, correct? Well, let me just object. There are two different questions. Whether- All right, let's bring in our legal analyst expert, Julius Kim, criminal defense attorney and managing partner of Kim and Lavoie, is with us. Julius, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, John. So Michael Mattioli is now being cross-examined. You could hear where the questioning was going there. Mattioli had been trying to say on direct examination earlier, I was listening to it, that he did not know that Joel Acevedo wasn't breathing. He did not know he was putting too much pressure. And now prosecutors get their shot, and they're trying to paint the picture that you did know he wasn't breathing, didn't you? Tell us about the risk of putting a defendant on the stand. Yeah, it's always a risk to put a defendant on the stand because, um, number one, because in this particular case, um, the defendant, Mr. Mattioli, um, spoke to the officers and spoke to investigators beforehand. So um, when he gets up on the stand, he can always be impeached by his own words that he used beforehand. And, and for reasons either because he's trying to lie or because he simply forgets, it could be easy for a prosecution to try and make someone look like they aren't telling the truth today as they take the stand. Also, you just kind of never know how a jury is going to react to someone who takes a stand. You know, sometimes jurors will react on a visceral level to someone when they get on the stand and and the case can be won or lost simply because the jurors uh, like someone or think that someone is likable or believable or not and so regardless of the facts sometimes things turn on those types of issues julius in your opinion does mattioli taking the stand indicate that the defense was losing ground that they were not doing well in this case not at all i, I think that this type of case uh called for Mattioli to take the stand because he has to explain uh, a lot of his actions that uh, didn't paint him out to look very, very good. And in this particular case, remember, for first-degree reckless, reckless homicide, the state has to show that he showed utter disregard for human life. And there were a lot of things about this case that kind of make it seem that way, right? Because he didn't know whether he even was breathing or not, purportedly. Um, he was saying some really bad things after the police got there about whether he didn't care whether he was hurt or injured or alive. So I think that the facts of this particular case required Mattioli to get on the stand and explain away why he said and did things he did. So have you been in situations, Julius, where you have a defendant that you know is likely to be impeached and you know it's going to be difficult on cross-examination, but you believe what you just told us, that the guy's got to get up there and tell his story. And how do you balance that and weigh that if you're a criminal defense attorney? Yeah, it, it's. The, the, I think the default for a defense attorney is always not to have to put your client on the stand if you if you can avoid it. But there are some cases where you just uh, you just have to. And then in those situations, you have to kind of do the best with what you have regarding 
the facts and regarding your own client. Um, and a lot of that is dealt with, uh, quite honestly, witness prep. <laughs> it sounds kind of bad. I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, but uh, sometimes people may have, you know, nervous twitches or they may appear nervous or just may need to be reminded to, you know, uh, speak slowly or to to uh, make, make eye contact uh, when we're asking questions. And so sometimes you can deal with some of those subjective things uh, just by giving uh, witnesses, whether it's your client or other witnesses, pointers on how to just relax and tell the truth on the stand. But other times you just kind of have to go with it because those are the facts as you're given. Julius, things are moving along rather briskly considering 38 witnesses are called to the stand in this trial. Then we advance to closing arguments. Just how powerful can closing arguments be as sort of the final word on a case? Um, I think they can be very powerful. I think, generally speaking, I think lawyers think that their closing arguments may be more powerful than they really are, uh, in my opinion. But there are certain cases where I think closing arguments can have more of an impact. And this is probably one of those situations. You know, Michael Mattioli, um, for what he's accused of doing, also has got kind of a sympathetic background. He's a police officer. Uh, evidently, he was in the National Guard as well. He came from a, a good upbringing by, by everything we can tell. And... I think that when you know what the defense here can present Mr. Mattioli almost as a as a sympathetic figure in, in this particular situation, and that gives them something to work with, as opposed to other defendants who might not appear uh, as sympathetic to a jury. So, in this particular situation, I think that closing arguments could you know potentially sway uh, a jury one way or the other because the facts really aren't that disputed. And Julius, before you let you go, I wanted to ask you about expert testimony. There was an expert for the defense today a former medical examiner who said the exact opposite of what the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner said. Milwaukee County Medical Examiner says yesterday, I believe there was compression, I believe there was excessive force, I'm paraphrasing, and I believe that caused the death. Today the defense finds a guy who comes up there and says, I don't believe any of that, I don't believe that's what happened. My question is, where do these hired guns get fired, get found, and how do they make their living doing this across the country? Take me inside this part of it. Yeah, well, Jeff Jensen is uh, the former medical examiner of Milwaukee County. He was a medical examiner for Milwaukee County for quite some time, and now uh, he's in academia, and he does do um, expert testimony across the country as well. So the defense got the right person, so to speak, in terms of of to testify uh, about, uh, you know, what happened and what what happened in this particular situation, in his opinion. Um, But and, And actually, Mr. Jensen was the one who hired the medical examiner that the state put on. So um, you know that's that's pretty powerful in and of itself. But there's a certain calculation that you have to make, and if you're putting an expert up on the stand, because if that expert doesn't come across as believable, then a jury is you know uh, you, you know more likely to just dismiss everything that expert has to say. But on the other hand, if the expert does come across believable, has those credentials like Mr. Jensen has, uh, it might plant that seed of doubt in their mind as to what actually uh, occurred here. And he had a little different opinion about. Uh, what the actual cause of death was in this particular case, and it's going to be up to the jurors to decide what actually happened. Julius Kim, criminal defense attorney, is a managing partner at Kim and Lavoie. Julius, thank you so much for being with us. Your perspective is so valuable. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care.